Good, again, I would love to uh, ask for your kind attention, some thoughts on practice, on the tools of our practice. I trust that the uh, folks who have arrived um, almost a week ago have found their way in. I would like to just do a little bit of Buddhist psychology for a, a very short glimpse. You may recall the images of Sati a few days ago. And I would like to identify six particular facets in non-Pali terms of Sati, which I think are useful to kind of bring bring to mind that these are uh, actually slightly different facets and I say this in the hope that uh, even if you disagree with me that uh, such a disagreement would elucidate to yourself what you actually believe, what you actually do, what you actually experience. So I'm not looking for your applause. Uh, I'm not out to completely convince you. I mean, it's always flattering if people take one's opinion, but um, I'm interested in making more of these teachings. And it is my concern after reading much, listening to much, um, both of Buddhist teachings and of psychological attempts to apply uh, parts of Buddhist teachings into a variety of settings from health to corporate to clinical to uh, just educational to just about every possible application of mindfulness now. I'm interested that some of the good juice that I sense is in the Buddhist teaching is not altogether lost. I am conscious that there are many legitimate ways of meditating, we come from a different background, we have differing needs, and developmentally we are at different stages, so it is perfectly legitimate to make use of something that feels good, that helps, that addresses my developmental needs, and uh, to just <coughs> do this. Yeah. I have no, absolutely no qualms with that, in fact I I know that Buddhists, and particularly Buddhist teachers, need to acknowledge developmental realities. Uh, it's one of the challenges of a teaching that is not couched in a developmental language, to calibrate that teaching in such a way that people at the very beginning of their path, and people way into their contemplative careers, and people well progressed in their contemplative undertakings, can equally benefit from those teachings. And sometimes this is not easily done. Yeah. So what does sati do if we speak of this in, in psychological language? The first aspect of sati, the first aspect of mindfulness is presence. It is bringing the capacity of the mind, its intelligence, its sensitivity, its availability uh, to the fore. 
it's kind of, a, think of this as an activity. Think of this as presencing. Um, those of you who have been here from the beginning will have heard me say this. The term satipatthana itself is um, ambivalent in uh, the way it can be understood. The commentaries insist that it means um, that patana basically is something like a ground. You know, and with a stretch, we come from the ground to the foundation. Yeah, that's the famous term. So we split the concept at sati and at patana. But <clears throat> truth be spoken, the term patana never actually occurs other than as a title for one of the Abhidhamma books in this meaning in the suttas. Yeah? It's a construed meaning. Uh, the much more likely interpretation of the term sati-patana doesn't split the, the compound at sati and patana, but it splits it at sati and upatana. Yeah? And that would then mean um, somebody who is an upataka is somebody who stands near, is somebody who looks after somebody. He is the, um, in monastic discipline, an upataka is the monk who looks after another monk. Yeah? So often he's looking after a teacher. He's something like a secretary, quite literally. Or he is something, somebody who looks after the other monk's needs, yeah? if he's a teacher or if he's sick. So he takes care. He's a caretaker. Yeah? So in this meaning, sati yeah, is not the objective domain in which we are asked to practice sati in, but sati is... Um, the concept of satipatthana means basically we are the caretakers of mindfulness. Yeah. The shift of emphasis lies in the first meaning, sati and patana, as the foundations of mindfulness speaks of a kind of almost objective domain in which I am uh, called to practice sati. The second meaning, which in many ways is more interesting, shifts the emphasis from the objective domain to the subjective activity. So, a number of people have translated that uh, with presencing or es establishing or um, <coughs> the beautiful concept of calling into being. You know, uh, is probably a, uh, a powerful way of understanding this second meaning of the concept of satipatthana. So, so the emphasis is not so much where I do it, but the emphasis is that I continually keep shifting the emphasis on actually doing it. Yeah? Remember, sati is a sankara in terms of the khandhas, in terms of the aspects of experience. Sati is deliberate, it is intentional, uh, it is neither a state nor is it a trait. You know? It is a skill. It is something we do. This is an interesting one. So, what do we do? We make things present. We bring things into the present. We bring, we presence things. We establish presence. So that would be the first big aspect of sati. Second big aspect of sati is that, is that of attention. Often sati and mindfulness is reduced to attention. Psychologists, you know, across the board, if you look, most of them, even people who are famous for having developed tests on 
mindfulness. Uh, it's quite disheartening to see how simplistic the notions are of that wonderful and many-faceted function of mind called sati. Yeah? There's about 10 tests out there who are measuring mindfulness. And um, the majority of them is rather dishearteningly re reductionist. Yeah. I'm all for testing mindfulness. I'm all for bringing mindfulness to school kids, politicians, even to the military. You know, I prove push comes to shove. I prefer soldiers who practice mindfulness to soldiers who don't. Yeah. I have no qualms about this. It's not what I would like to do, but basically, uh, I can't soldiers from happening. And meditating soldiers, I would prefer to non-meditating soldiers. I'm a little biased there. So. But if we look at uh, how this notion of mindfulness is conceptualized, it often shrivels down to basically the ability to attend, to be attentive. You know? It shrivels to its deliberate aspect. Now that deliberate aspect, the intentional aspect, is powerful and is necessary. It's absolutely, it's the raw material of mindfulness. But you know, while sati is actually wholesome, attention is not a priori wholesome. You can attend to something absolute, absolute unwholesome attention. Yeah? I can very attentively um, take aim, you know, hold my breath and shoot. That's very attentive. It works better if I'm attentive, but this is absolutely not sati, it's absolutely not mindful, it's absolutely not ethical. So attention alone does not qualify for mindfulness, that has to be bluntly said. But it is a component of mindfulness. The next uh, dimension of sati is <coughs> spatial. I believe the, the, word, the English word that covers this best is, is awareness. Yeah. Unlike attention, awareness is not something we, we can do. You can't do awareness somehow. You can do attention. Yeah, You can take your attention back from things, give it to other things. You can make it big, wide, or you can make it small. You can make it strict, or you can make it liberal. You can make it soft, or you can make it clinical. You can do all kinds of things with attention. With awareness, you can't generally do this sort of thing. Awareness seems to have very much the spatial feel. Yeah? It speaks of a dimension of space. This is a very important one. If that, not, if that is not there, then our sati is very poor. You know? It's very obsessive. It's very uh, constricted. It's, it's, it's not a happy sati if that space is not there. Many of the things in our life change if the space element changes around something. So, we have... Bringing things into the present, attention, identifying, discerning, creating continuity of presence. We have awareness creating the space. Then we have sati is capable of um, making us aware of something not just in a cognitive way. Sati is graphic. If we know something with sati, it is illustrative. Yeah. It, is in a, it doesn't just touch us in a sort of cognitive way. 
It's not just a discursive knowing of something. It is a profound knowing that is in some way graphic and that is in some way, it connects us with this thing. It connects us with this process. It connects us with this person. Connects us with the situation. So it is. I don't know whether the word illustrative rings a bell for you, but it is something that makes it very clear and limpid and in my senses. Yeah, it's not. It's non-abstract. I think that's probably as close as I can get. Yeah, it's a non-abstract way of knowing something. Um, then we have. Sati in its capacity to um, bring something back, yeah? so to the capacity to recall something, something that has slipped away or that has been marginalized or that has moved off to the periphery, we can bring that back. So there's a kind of a power, attraction to bring back what has been lost or what is in danger of being lost. So these are all differing aspects, and I think they're worth um, considering. You know, you may have uh, familiarity with uh, these aspects, and you may notice that some aspects may be standing out a lot more for you. Yeah. So what do we have? Presencing, bringing things into the present. We have attending, yeah. being able to identify, focus. Then we have awareness as the third, bringing in the spatial dimension. Then we have the capacity to actually resonate with something. We're not cool when we are with sati. We, we, we feel what we touch. It is resonant. That is an important one. We're not out there. That's called dissociation. Just knowing from a total distance and not feeling it. This is not sati. Yeah. Sati is resonant. We have not lost our sensitivity to it. We're not just preoccupied with our own safety or our own feelings of security or control. That's only vigilance. Yeah. Yeah. So sati has a resonant dimension. Then we do have vigilance, you know, which is in there as well. So vigilance is basically I'm awake. Yeah, things can reach me. I'm online. Yeah, there's something there. It's not. It's not asleep. It's not just placid. It's not just peaceful. It's sensitive. It's awake. It's it's primed. Yeah. And then we have this illustrative quality. So sati makes me in a profound graphic and more than cognitive way aware of what's happening yeah. i have a depth connection to this and finally sati is capable of bringing back things is capable of recalling what uh, has some importance what i have given way to what i have affirmed in my mind Now you may not always feel all of these different dimensions, but yet they, they are they are there. And they, in the training of mindfulness, I think it's good that we do not lose uh, some of these some of these facets. Sometimes, you know, we we home in on one particular aspect of sati. 
holding something present or feeling something or being able to know with the distance Um, and it's useful to kind of make oneself aware of varying facets of sati all of these facets are later of great importance in the mind training the facet of stability you remember the image of the post yeah is of great importance when it uh, comes to develop stillness the facets of in inquiry you remember the doctor with the probe that he inserts in the wound of our injured man you know this facet of examination inquiry research is very crucial in the development of wisdom um, the capacity to resonate yeah. as a dimension of sati is very important in the development of the Brahma-viharas. Yeah. We have metta for something. When we experience metta, then this is not primarily an effusive, warm, fuzzy state. That's nice if you have that. But as a practice, metta is intentional. It is that I intend to relate to something in a friendly manner. Now, you can do that even if you don't feel particularly friendly. That is important. You don't have to wait till you feel soft and fuzzy before you can practice metta. While this is highly desirable to feel soft and fuzzy and having an effusive heart, um, the actual practice is not having that state. The actual practice is affirming an intention that is friendly, that is welcoming, that receives, that is capable of resonating with, that is capable of turning towards, and that is capable of making space in that heart realm for something to actually touch and be part of me. And that I, for a moment, with an open heart, resonate with that which has entered into the field of my experience. Now, the capacity of resonance that is already in sati is crucial to the development of these Brahma-viharas, not just of metta, but also of the other three, which are, they're all relational. They're not just objects of my mind or states of my heart. They're actually relational qualities, paradigms. The resonance is also crucial for the development of ethics, in which sati, again, is a central piece. Um, and so we have in this seed quality of sati, which is kind of many shimmering facets. Uh, and each of these facets in some way gives rise to a whole dimension of Buddhist mind training, yeah? ethics, insight, stillness, Brahma-viharas. So it's important to understand this, so that we're not just kind of spending hour and hour of training our minds to obsess with a particular aspect of sati. Yeah, this is at the root, and that's why it is so tragic and sad if people who, with the best of intentions, reduce sati to basically the ability to not believe one's thought. Yeah, I mean this is a useful capacity not not to believe one thought you know because most thoughts are highly dubious and I don't know what your mind is like but you know my mind tells me a lot of things I bet they don't believe yeah 
So it's a useful thing not to have to believe one's thought, but to reduce the notion of sati to this particular facet seems a little unjust. Yeah? Let's say just because you love apples, basically, you give up on fruit. Yeah? That's a bit sort of Taliban, isn't it? Yeah? Because you love Allah, you have to destroy Buddha statues. Yeah? And we don't want to do this. We want to, in some way, deepen our understanding of this magic, uh, powerfully transformative attitude that is at the heart of our mind function. And that, when developed and when understood, branches out in all the big dimensions of mind training, of what the Buddha spent 45 years basically teaching and preaching to people. So, please consider this. I wanted to say uh, a few things about thirst tonight. The tanha, as one of the uh, uh, challenges, there's a great poignancy, the experience of desire, of craving, of uh, wanting, uh, has many facets. I think the image of thirst as a as a, as a metaphor for this state is quite uh, telling. It's um, an unquenchable thirst, we have to add. Um, desire has many facets. We have raga, which is kind of, this is this kind of desire, this raga. Yeah, this is the kind of desire that's generally loud and, and grim, and it we do it's unmistakable. Yeah, it says I want. Yeah, and then we have um, other forms of desire. We have loba, which is more so sort of the sticky quality of desire. It doesn't make so much noise, but it's fairly tenacious. Yeah, kind of a like sort of a suction cup. It always goes suck there. You know if you ever had a gecko in your hand or you know what a suction cup is and you have an idea there's some it's just clingy you know and then you have uh, forms of sharpened interest chanda Uh, buddhist psychology is ambivalent about the value of chanda on the one hand it is rated very useful if that chanda interest and keenness is connected with something wholesome say Dhamma Chanda, you're interested in the teachings. Um, If that interest is connected with, say, sensuality, then it is considered to be not wholesome. Karma Chanda uh, is a kind of interest that is detrimental to liberation, detrimental to contentment, detrimental to peace and awakening. So Tanha is somewhere in there. It is uh, the key term. Independent arising, as you know, uh, the image is that of the uh, the drunk, basically. Yeah, remember the drunk sitting there, wait, waiting till his cup is filled again, and it is obvious that his cup is never full enough, and he will continue to drink. He will not know enough. Yeah. The opposite of desire is contentment. Yeah. Contentment is a moment of. Uh, speaks of a satiation, while desire is uh, intrinsically insatiable. Now, desire is an incredible motor. 
Um, even Buddhist teaching admits that. There's a famous passage which is unique. It says, uh, desire is to be given up by desire. Yeah? So you need some kind of desire to get going in a way that by the end of that you can give up desire. So there is an acknowledgement that you cannot basically move unless some form of desire is at work. Yeah. So in our society, desire has many, many names. Yeah, it's called ambition, or it's called uh, uh, the wish for improvement, or it's called um, gaining safety, or it's called uh, acquiring fortune. It's called being successful. It's called yeah, or seeking success, seeking improvement, you know, things like that. We have many names for what Buddhist teaching would call desire. And it's probably fair to acknowledge that the motor of our economies and our affluence um, is squarely due to the workings of desire. So a teaching that considers desire to be a problem is um, somewhat um, controversial, to say the least. You know, it's downright conspirative. Um, it's important to understand the breadth of that teaching. As with Dukkha, as I said the other night, you know, if we underestimate the term, if we take it more narrow than it actually is meant, then it sounds like it doesn't really concern us. We don't have it. Yeah. And with that, the effectiveness, the power, and also the existential um, importance of the teaching somehow bypasses because we feel we're actually we're not having that much desire we can't know we're kind of normal you know we're kind of just natural yeah i don't really have desires i just have kind of organic wishes yeah uh, many of my desires they they camouflage they say you know i need many of my desires they say i need i need ice cream now it's a hot day not any ice cream, particular ice cream. Carter and Stevens is pretty good, so. <laughs> Carter and Stevens ice cream would really do the job. This is a need, you know. This is not some whim. You know? It's nutritious, it's good stuff, ice cream, you know. And, you know, this credibility coming into my inner voices, they bring arguments. You have, haven't had a long time ice cream, you know, it's at least three days. Or you've, you've exerted yourself, you deserve this. You know. It's time for you to now receive some bonus. Yeah. You've been a good boy, or you've been working hard. Or every third Dhamma talk you get ice cream, or something like that. So, uh, you know what I mean, I exaggerate. Many of our desires um, do speak not, I am a desire, please follow me, I will make you happy. They say, um, this is necessary, before you can go on, this is necessary. Now it's important to understand that these desires obviously concern our senses. Yeah? There is the very famous and easily understood wish that I make a particular experience, yeah, that I get a particular sensory form of gratification. I wish this to be taking place. I would like to have one of these. Yeah. Or 
uh, you can get yourself really in trouble with this wish. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting myself now in trouble in Europe with having founded an institute with three guys just because I can't contain my desire to have a BCBS like the guy. You, you have one down there. Yeah, very nice house, meditation hall, 5,000 books in the library, program of Buddhist study all year. I come over here and I have desire. I wish one, I would like one of these over in Europe. And you know, that's what we're doing now. We're starting one of these over in Europe. So this is hard work. This is going to occupy me for, I hope it's going to survive me. So I know that little desire and my consent to that desire will get me into, right now it gets me into writing emails and worrying about bank accounts and programs and negotiating with, you know, desires tend to make things complicated. Put it like that. Even wholesome desires like having Buddhist study institute, they tend to make things complicated. Whenever things in your life are complicated, be sure there's some desire in there. When things are contradictory, when you find yourself doing things that you don't know why you're doing, have a look. There will be some desire not too far from there. Now it is important to know that there are different brands of desire. The easiest desires we speak of is kamatana. It's the desire that is geared towards experience. Yeah? Things to visit, things to know, things to taste, things to feel, things to own, things to, to be traveled to. This is easy stuff. Yeah? It's easily, we all recognize that. Yeah? It's the wish to enjoy, the wish to savor, the wish to own, the wish to encounter, to engage with. Our societies are very uh, applauding of that wish. It's considered an expression of our freedom, of our individuality. It is generally rated to be um, positive if we want to move, if we want to expand, if we want to improve, if we want to grow. If it, all this is um, usually our societies are very positive about this. Even the wish to enjoy, the wish to uh, make a splash, all this is, our societies are quite tolerant of this. They get a little nervous if we are, if it goes towards addiction or if it's abusive, then our societies have strong moral feelings about this. Yeah? But on the whole, desire is quite approved of. The second type of desire is basically already off the map of uh, much of Western psychology. The second type of desire is bhavatanha. Now bhavatanha, this is many times misunderstood in Buddhist teaching. Bhavatanha is about becoming. Yeah? The basic statement in bhavatanha is deficiency. The statement says, run something like this. As it is, is not enough. As it is, is not good enough. It's not deep enough, rich enough, big enough, effective enough, pretty enough, um, successful enough. It's deficient. Yeah? Bhavatanha does not refer to sensory experience. Bhavatanha refers to so-called abstract qualities. Qualities like love, like power, like safety like control, like uh, reputation, prestige, influence, things like that. These are not things we can immediately have 
or own or buy. But as you know, and a little reflection will quickly prove that human beings are capable of immensely desiring these things and making immense efforts to obtain things like that. Just think of control, just think of power, just think of reputation. We do an awful lot of work, we create an awful lot of effort to be loved. If you're looking at your behavioral patterns, it's very interesting to know how you, what your primary strategies are to being loved. Yeah, because that was pretty important for you to get attention. And one way to get attention is being loved, because you get more attention when you're loved. So generally, we, we, we quickly learn what our best strategy is to get a maximum of affectionate attention. Yeah? Because we, we instinctively know this is necessary for us to grow. We can't really grow up without empathetic connection. Yeah. There's a few things we just learn from others, with others, through others. One of them is to talk. Another one is empathy. Another one is mindfulness. There are things in this world which you only learn with and from and through other people. At any stage of your learning, you need them. First, you need them as examples. Then you need them to help you. And then you need them to practice it with. So all these things, empathy, speech, mindfulness, We don't learn unless there are people who behave that way towards us and who help us when we are beginning to behave in such ways and who, when we have some proficiency in this, continue to be around and practice this with us. If you keep spending time just with your computer, you will notice that human beings make you strangely impatient because you can't switch them off because they don't have any keyboard shortcuts. You, you can't just put in data and get results. Yeah. The compiler somehow doesn't quite work the same way. It takes them a lot longer to, to understand something. You can't just press compile and then it runs. The program is compiled. It doesn't quite work that way with human beings. So when you do a lot of work with particular pieces of equipment, suddenly you find human beings rather confusing, rather ineffective, uh, rather, rather wayward, you know. I give very, very clear commands at the prompt and, and the thing just doesn't compute properly, you know. It goes off in all kinds of spins. So, establishing Love, establishing control, establishing reputation, establishing safety. Uh, These are big, big projects in our life. And there is a type of desire that is squarely directed at this. Now you may get your safety through having many friends, or you may get your safety through having no friends and being completely independent. Both of them, once you have detected that your reason for this is safety, is basically one and the same thing. Even though it looks diametrically opposed, once you've realized that the the major move in there, the major uh, drift in there is your wish for safety, then you realize uh, you've invested in this and you will pay a price for that. 
we always pay a price for desire. Often that price tag is not obvious to us. What is obvious is the promise for gratification. The price tag generally is not obvious. So the, th the th second of those forms of desire uh, is a lot less charming in some ways. Yeah, well, we're all charming when we speak about other people's desires, isn't it? So if we're not indignant, we find it quite charming, you know. Quite no, it's quite nice if you know somebody enjoys something and then you give them this, or you send them one of these, or you invite them to that. Or, you know, this is what we want to share. We enjoy when other people enjoy something. It gives us good feelings if we can provide other people pleasure or joy. This is very nice. It is empowering. Um, it makes them human and it lets us feel generosity in our hearts, maybe even mudita. There's a third type of desire, which uh, is even further off the map of Western psychology, and this is the desire to get rid of. It's called vibhavatanha, uh, to, take, to take something to non-becoming. Yeah. This is an interesting one. Now, this is a desire, this is not a version, it has to be understood. A version and the desire to take something to non-becoming is different. A version, if your mind is aversed, then that aversion is really basically non-specific. Once your mind is aversed, then you will find that aversion colors just about everything that happens. You know, it will reduce your capacity to taste, it will reduce your enjoyment in, uh, of present company. It will harden your gaze. It will make you more prone to find fault with just about everything under the sun once your aversion is going. Now, Vibhavatanha is not like that. Vibhavatanha is very specific. It is the specific wish that something that is there be gone. Yeah? When Bhavatanha is the wish that something that is there but felt to be wanting and not enough increase, then vibhavatanha is the opposite. It is the wish that something that is there be disappeared, be prohibited, be shot to the moon, be somehow outlawed in a way that you don't have to bother with it anymore. Hmm? It is the vervent and passionate wish that one particular aspect of your experience does not take place anymore. That may be 10 kilos of your body weight, or it may be your angry thoughts, or it may be um, <clears throat> a sneezing neighbor in your meditation hall, or, you know, that basically it is the wish that one particular aspect of your experience stop, disappear, evaporate, spontaneously combust, be shot to the moon, yeah, so this it's a desire that something not be there. And that is important to recognize as a desire. Yeah? Now desires bring about all kinds of things. Uh, many things can go wrong with desires. Even, first of all, it may turn out that you don't get what you want. That's a very often scenario. I wish something and I, I don't get it. I generally leave such an experience with disappointment. I am sometimes slighted, I am despondent, I am frustrated, 
Uh, I may be depressed, sad, I may be grieving. Jack Engler, very early in the 80s, I think, said that basically Buddhist path of awakening is nothing else for as a long grieving process about the non-existence of yourself. You're doing a lot of bereavement work for something that wasn't there in the first place and that you spend many years blaming the Buddhist for taking it away from you. They come and take away yourself and they come and take away your fun and then they come and take away your escape strategies. Buddhists are really bad people. They make your life miserable. So, um, even uh, if I do get something that I desire, still a number of things may get wrong. Even if I succeed in actually getting what I wished and I am spared the frustration of simply not getting it, when I get it, it may not deliver well, as I expected it would deliver. I may find that what I expected and what my actual gratification is, um, is discrepant, substantially discrepant. Well, that I either expected too much or I just didn't get enough of the stuff, the good stuff. So I may be bewildered, I may be uh, in some way disappointed, I may be um, longing in a sort of strange, confused way, not being met, uh, being left somewhere high and dry, but you know, yeah, that was it, but why is, is it over? Yeah, that, that was it. So a kind of almost annoyed disappointment is often the, the result of this, this kind of thing. Or I may get it, what I desire, and it's just not enough. Uh, although it tastes exactly as I expected it to taste, but it's so little, you know. It only occurs so few and far in between, so it seems disproportionate to maintain such a degree of expectation for something I can only have so few times. Yeah? So again, I am disappointed, not because my expectations were wrong, this time my expectations were right, but it somehow seems unfair that something that makes me so happy I can only get so little of. So again, I am bewildered, I am unhappy, uh, often the, an element of confusion. Should I try harder to get more or should I try to wean myself off from this? Is there somebody to blame for that I only get so little? Is there some injustice at work? Am I, am I being deprived here by some cruel god or some cruel government or some, some circumstance that I can somehow put the finger on? Um, I may get it in abundant enough measure. It tastes as great as I expected it would taste. But then, with some horror, I noticed that actually the, the law of diminishing returns kicks in. You know? I may, the effect of getting it seems to somehow be decreasing. Even though I keep getting it, somehow the reward that kicks in seems to be decreasing. Yeah. Now that is really sad. Yeah. I think that's what Oscar Wilde must have meant when he said there are 
only two tragedies, you know. Uh, one is to not get what you want, and the other one, the real one, is to get it. Yeah. So I guess that's what he must have meant. The acknowledgement that we do not respond to stimulation in continually, not even linear, but even in a level way. So if we, you know, today, yesterday it was a great idea, today I actually got it, tomorrow it's still great, a little less uh, overwhelming, the day after it, begin, it begins to be normal and, you know, next week I'm going to be bored with it. Yeah, we kind of, we have this pattern, isn't it? We have this pattern, we've had that with many times, with possessions, with new training equipment, new partners, new jobs, uh, new places, new toys, you know. I'm sure you've all had this. I remember as a kid with my first battery-driven airplane, you know, kind of wondering what happened, why it somehow didn't, why it didn't keep making me as happy as it did on the first evening why I kept noticing more and more flaws in my toy. I remember having theories. One of them was that um, I was, uh, God still played a big role in my life then. I remember that God was punishing me or giving me to understand that I'm not a really a good person because he gave me a toy that was not perfect. You know? I remember my plane... It was doing a slight curve when I just let it roll. And I realized I, I, was, I was pained by that experience. And I thought it might be a hint from God to tell me that I, you know, I, I was found wanting. So I was given a toy that had a slight kink. Yeah? <laughs> that continued for a while, actually. It continued definitely up to my first bicycle. I remember this was not just a passing little thought that preoccupied me for a while. That, you know, that I was basically given successive messages that I was found wanting, so I was given toys that were wanting in some ways. They were there, they functioned, but somehow they all had flaws. And I suspected that was a message there, that I too somehow was flawed. Then there is the other case where we get what we want, and it is as wonderful as we expected. And magically enough, our appreciation does not decrease, even with time. But then we start to worry that we might lose it. You know, we start to worry that the Joneses are getting a bigger one. or We start to worry whether it's going to be there. Yeah? So my joy about having it, my joy of appreciation, savoring this experience, craved for, hard worked for, finally obtained, rewarding as only I could have wished for, and yet it fills me with anxiety what will happen when I lose, when I lose it. I mean, think of your loved ones, isn't it? We all worry what happens when we're not there. Or I do, yeah. So, so many things can go wrong even if we succeed in getting what we desire. Yeah. And there is no guarantee that we succeed. Depending on the outrageousness of your desires, you may, you may settle for things you basically never get. Yeah. There's only so many people who can become President of the United States. So if you're 
goals are set that high, then your chances are probably small, you know, demographically really small. Um, so even if we can fulfill our desires, there's a number of things that tend to make the expected gratification uh, that decrease or attenuate or um, reduce our, our gratification. It's important to recognize that and it's recorded to recall desire is not just sensual desire, it is also the desire for um, stability, the desire for safety, the desire for love and power and recognition and control and prestige. Yeah? And we know, you know, how, how important are peers in your life, yeah? Uh, peers are the people when you put in work in a particular field in your life, and these are the people who can give you recognition. It's nice if your kids love you, and it's nice if, you know, your friends and your neighbors love you for this, but the one recognition that really matters is the one from your peers, isn't it? Because these are guys who have, like you, worked hard in this field, and they know the game, and they know where you are. Yeah? So, how much do we work for this? How much do we want to be recognized? That's such a huge thing. I, I see people are so successful. They have every, you know, they have more money than they have wishes. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> you know, the willingness to be unhappy because so-and-so wrote a bad review of my last article or so-and-so didn't give me the credit I felt I was due or uh, I was not made head of the department <laughs> or you know, how much suffering comes from a lack of recognition from a few peers, few select people who um, you know, who are all part of a race in which it's obvious that only very few people can get, can win. Yeah. This, uh, so many people running around and so few chairs to actually sit down. Yeah. And the more your mind focuses on, say, ambition or, or, or prestige, or, the more you can become bitter and um, cynical. So, there is a lot of potential of suffering in number two type of tanha, in the tanha that is not about sense experience. And the number three type tanha also holds a lot of potential. We can find fault. Usually the most passionate and the most acrimonious fault finding takes place within our own hearts. Yeah? We find fault with aspects of ourselves. Obviously, we will blame a few others, you know, we project the stuff outwards and, uh, uh, and then decry them and blame them and criticize them and feel smug about them and, um, or with their help feel smug about ourselves, I have to say. But, you know, deep down many of us know that all this uh, ire and all this acid we uh, and contempt we're willing to pour over others, basically, uh, sooner or later this will, this will hit aspects of our own lives, of our own hearts. We will find fault about things we have done or not done. 
about things we deem to be the bane of our lives, our lack of discipline or our incapacity to 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 be giving or our acerbic minds or our scatteredness or our fearfulness. You know, there's a thousand things you can find fault with yourself. It's and our our culture has really uh, turned that into a into an art. Asian teachers are shocked when they find out how how enthusiastic self-hating we are, how enthusiastically self-hating we can be. Yeah, this is the, they're quite unanimously shocked at the Thais, the Tibetans. Uh, I don't know about the Burmese, but I would be very surprised. Just the willingness to engage in self-destructive thought patterns, self-hating emotional uh, structures, uh, nasty introjects that kind of haunt us for the for our life a lifelong you know passionate uh, forms of self-hating behavior basically this is um we're really good at that better than most of the asian communities i have connected with um so that type of attitude has something to do with vibhavatanha yeah often with the wish to be rid of that particular part we have identified as a problem. And it's necessary to recognize the desired pattern in this. Otherwise, desires is just for food and ice cream and people and uh, a little more money than I have and uh, a little more garden than I have and a little more car than I have. You know, this is all fair enough. That's bad enough. But the real big stuff is generally type 2 and type 3 desire. Most of the people I meet are suffering. When they suffer from desire, they suffer from type 2 and type 3 desires, a lot more than from uh, getting a bigger bag of palm chips or so. So consider this. When you meet parts of yourself um, in the coming days, coming weeks in your practice, consider, would you recognize in a petitious, pernicious thought pattern, in a petitious, pernicious streak you deem to be uh, encountering in your own heart or mind, would you recognize the desire pattern? Yeah. Ask yourself, could it be that I can't let go of this because in some way this is a desire? Yeah. And I need to understand it as a desire. The only way I can let go of a desire is to understand it as a desire and to understand that ultimately Investing in this desire is a futile attempt at being happy. Yeah. So, you know, contemplative path is, is about specificity. We need to understand the specifics of our brand of suffering. Now, there's a thousand one ways how you can suffer. And it's necessary to figure out how you're doing this. When you're interested in stop doing it, you need to be quite specific in how you're doing it. That means you need to find out what you want, how you go about it, and what doesn't work. And it's important to recognize some of the culprits in there. It's not all aversion that postures as aversion. Sometimes it, it's desire in there. So, ponder this. The teaching is not a secret. It's the definition of desire as found in countless places in the suttas, um, most famously. You know, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the law, 
credited to be credited to be one of the first sermons of the Buddha to his disciples, occurring in several places, once in the Vinaya and once in the Samyutta Nikaya. Uh, just a synopsis of obviously a teaching that went on for many days. In the famous one, the short one, pretends it's basically just one little teaching at the end. You know, one guy has stream entry and other, the other four guys are uh, deeply inspired. But there is a second version of that teaching and it occurs <coughs> in another place. And in that place it is said that while the Buddha was teaching two of his monks, uh, of his newly won monks, uh, those were his first disciples, the two others, uh, he was teaching three and two of them went to town and, and gathered alms food. So it is clear because the monks don't gather alms food all day long. It is clear that these teachings obviously went on for several days. Otherwise they wouldn't have gathered alms food for this. And that we only have a very condensed version of this teaching. But in that teaching, so amongst the five khandhas and the eightfold path and the two extremes and the uh, definition of dukkha is also a definition of tanha. And the three forms of tanha, kama tanha, sense desire, bhava tanha, the desire for becoming, and vibhava tanha, the desire to get rid of, are mentioned. Yeah. So. Good, I'm glad you're still here. Enough for tonight. Yeah.